Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Willie Soon. Dr. Soon is an astrophysicist and a geoscientist. He is focused on the relationship between solar phenomena and global climate, as well as the orbital dynamics of the sun, earth, and other planets, as well as volcanic and tectonic activities. Dr. Soon is the author of The Maunder Minimum and the Variable Sun-Earth Connection. In a career spanning more than 30 years, he has held several positions at many scientific and research institutions. And in 2018, he founded the Center for Environmental Research and Earth Sciences in order to tackle a wider range of issues and topics without fear or prejudice. His discoveries challenge climate orthodoxy dominated by computer modelers and advocates who consistently underestimate solar influences on cloud formation 
ocean currents and wind that cause climate to change. In other words, Dr. Soon here is to tell us the extremely controversial idea that the weather on Earth is affected by this enormous, enormous, enormous ball of plasma burning in the sky, shining down on the sun. And you might think this is obvious, but that's probably because you haven't suffered through a lot of modern uh, science and modern climate science and the superstitions they have where they insist that the weather on Earth is not so much determined by this giant ball of plasma called the sun in the sky, but it is almost determined by a thermostat, which is the level of CO2, tiny little particulates that form about 0.04% of the Earth's atmosphere, but we're supposed to believe are the control knob for our Earth's temperature. Dr. Soon is also here to discuss with us his ideas on whether hydrocarbons really are coming from fossils. And this is something that I have researched and looked at for quite a while and find to be very interesting and very compelling. And I look forward to hearing his uh, ideas on this. So Dr. Soon, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me on and uh, let this be a somewhat of a conversation, obviously, I, not to be a monologue. I know you are a man of uh, integrity and full of opinion. I've watched a few of your podcasts, especially with two of my senior mentors, you know, Dick Linson and Will Harper. So it's highly impressive that, you know, I get invited to myself. So, But I, I am a hardworking scientist. I've been on this topic for a very long time. And yes, it, it is the big Bob, I would say. All the weather and climate is driven by Bob, B-O-B, you know, that, that big orange ball out there. And, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a really, you need to go a bit further back in, in, in the history of how the evolution of this topic has become so politicized and weaponized. And I'm sure you discuss plenty of this sort of evidence, but, but it is very confused because <laughs> who am I? Just a little scientist. Why, why am I constantly against, you know, United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, the National Academy of Science, you know, all these other distinguished colleagues with, you know, and, and scientists with so many accolades and name, you know, medals under their, their I guess, their, their profile. And it's very puzzling. And it is politicized. This is why I, I, it's very puzzling. And there are many, many basic questions in science that is worthy of answering, and they are not un they're not being answered. I mean, no one is even pursuing that path. I still remember during my postdoctoral year in uh, in 2001, I managed to write a review article criticizing the current generation of climate model. And then I stood up there, and then, of course, the former IPCC chairman, Sir John Houghton, was at that meeting in, in Tenerife, Spain. And I spoke about how, you know, giving example by an example of which component of the climate model, like how the atmosphere are being parametrized, the oceans, you know, how they're all not doing the right jobs. And then the cloud never, the cloud is, of course, <laughs> one of the hardest problems. And then Sir John Houghton was actually quietly asking me after I come off from stage, he asked me, why are you telling people all this? I say, sir, you know, this is a problem that even as a scientist that's been only studying this stuff, by that time was about 10 years, I noticed that, you know, many of the questions that was asked in the 60s and 70s by many of the weather pioneers, I mean, has not been resolved. In fact, it gets worse. So this is why, as a scientist, I'm obligated to say that. I mean, imagine IPCC chairman tell you that you're not supposed to criticize climate model. 
for being inadequate, for, I don't know, handling things that they want to call climate, where they don't have any formal definition of what a climate is. You know, going from weather to climate, it is a complete open question. You can ask Dick Blinson himself, what is the climate? Is it 30 years average of the weather? Hell no. I would, I would immediately say no. Of course, when you teach students pedagogical approach, you have to kind of simplify things. But you have to always keep in mind that there is no formal definition of how this weather statistics, you know, basically from, you know, hourly to, you know, by night, you know, to, you know, diurnal to, you know, all the time scale, you know, days and months and years and all that to, to decades, you know, even century. The perspective that knowing climate by, by actually having information like 100 and 150 years is just totally inadequate. We just don't understand how climate varies and actually how large and how small they could vary, isn't it? I mean, this is why I actually have been spending 30 some years of uh, time on this. I can tell you that we make a lot of progress. So maybe, basically, we should really focus on the progress that I've made, of course. I think that will make it more interesting. I mean, one of the things starting point, which actually I, I kind of have to not follow chronology because, you know, as a scientist, you just go there. You just follow your instinct, you know, try to explore this and that, which question is more interesting and which one has the highest probability of being answered. So one of the oldest questions that everybody should ask with is the Sun-Earth orbital condition. You would think that that problem is completely solved, right? I can assure you that it has not been solved because the last accurate solution that was provided that everybody used, you know, until let's say 2017 when we produced our major paper that basically just calculate how the Earth orbit goes around the sun. But the problem now without any, what you call simplified approximation, the, that last solution that was produced in 1978 was by Professor Ander Berger of Louvain in, in Belgium. But it treated the, you see, Earth and Moon is a very unique system. We are called the binary system. They treated them as center of body of mass. So essentially, you don't capture the dynamics of the Moon. Okay. Then never mind that you want to talk about time scale that is actually, you know, year, interannual, you know, year to year, decade to decades, even 50 years to 50 years, 100 years to 100 years, like centennial, millennial. Because <laughs> when they approximate the, the perturbation solution that they do, it's only good up to every thousand years or every two thousand years. So it's a long-term approximation. So there's no what you call all this shorter timescale dynamics because a lot of these are indeed very subtle, just like the way we got season, just by the sun moving the angle a little bit, 23 degrees to the south, 23 degrees to the north, where you provided the whole driver for the whole system. This is why you need to capture all of this. So my first question is really, is that have we got the orbital condition correctly? I can tell you that before 2017, before I hook up with my good friend from Argentina, his name is uh, Professor Gustavo Cionzo, uh, we actually provide the first answer to this. So I'm very happy that no one was, they were so arrogant, by the way. So lucky that I can scoop this one out. So I have that at least if you look in the literature, no one has done it, we've done it. So, okay, goodbye. i done it first. Then the next question to ask is the sun, the big bob. You know, how much does it vary? How does it vary in the first place, right? We know that the sun is a magnetized body. It's enormously complex in terms of if you're really trying to describe it in, you know, in terms of fluids and plasma, right? 
I mean, you know that the kind of equations you need is pretty much very sophisticated type. You need the Maxwell equation and then you need the famous Navier-Stokes equation. And then imagine coupling that. I mean, we all know that even the Navier-Stokes equation itself has this problem of no one knows whether there's a unique solution and things like that. So it's a very formal, uh, really difficult problem. And the sun itself, the, the best knowledge we have is actually just basically create instrument to measure them, try to ascertain certain properties. You know, how much does the light varies? And then in x-ray, in UV, in visible light, in infrared, so on and so forth. And we have clearly that, of course, over 150 years, we have made some progress. We know a few things, but we don't know a lot more, right? This is why it's very puzzling, by the way, that IPCC, if you look at the evolution of how they treat the, the sun, okay, from their model, basically IPCC is that United Nations body, right, formed by World Meteorological Organization and UNEP, one of the UN foundation, that they hooked together in uh, 1990 where they started to discuss these social issues about potential of, uh, you know, fossil fuel emitting, you know, after you burn the fossil fuel, you create the, emit the carbon dioxide that it caused the climate to, to change, right? Causing global warming. But you realize that from the evolution, from the first report, right? In 1990 to the second report in 1995 or six or so, to the third report in 2001, to the fourth report in 2007, to the fifth report in 2013, to the sixth report in 2021, they are showing that they increasingly, by the way, my work, used to be very popular among IPCC because I was one of the, I guess, frontier, doing all the frontier research. So third assessment and the second assessment, which is 95, 96, and 2001, cited my work very positively. And then by the by the fourth assessment, fifth assessment, of course, it's all disappeared from the world. I, I just don't exist anymore, simply because I guess I started to beginning to say something and then express my opinion and, and try to share with people my, my scientific result. So we come up with the answer. Basically, basically, everything that IPCC say, essentially, just I could not subscribe to, which means all their conclusions are, I would say, substandard. It's not even close to being a science, which means they are playing politics a lot, following certain narrative, right? They don't really, there's no curiosity. There's no interest in how much the sun actually varies. They just jump onto whoever that can produce the answer that fit the narrative then that work will be highlighted. So the example is actually the clear example I can tell you in, let's say the fourth assessment, fifth assessment, and sixth assessment. IPCC in the, in the uh, fourth assessment, they recommended that to provide the estimate of the solar irradiance. How much does the light change over, let's say, 150 years or 300 years, right? They actually provided about four or five uh, estimates, different estimates, because really to estimate this thing is very difficult as I try to express. And then in the, in the fifth assessment, 2013, they narrow it down to about four, three or three of them or, or something, right? Then the sixth assessment, one and one and only one. That is really ridiculous. That's why this year, about uh, uh, last year, actually September, uh, October of 2023, we published a major review where we managed to show that, look, as far as we're concerned on the question of the solar estimate, there are some 27 of them that are equally possible. Why is it that IPCC just quickly say that there's only one available? It's just very strange kind of situation. So as a scientific person, I can't, I can't subscribe to that. 
And then another class of problem that IPCC that is extremely biased in terms of handling such a simple question. How much does the temperature change? How does the, what, what causes it to change? Can it be CO2? Can it be the sun and all that? Even the CO2, they are biased completely because they just selectively pick all. The, for example, when you talk about so-called men part of it, I don't know if anybody know that they have up to about 15 or 16 different factors, including contrail, airplane, all kinds of things, aerosol, aerosol. You know what? When they talk about sulfate aerosol, this this particle, you know, particle size of a millimeter to micron, you know, micrometer, ten to the minus six, right? And then even nanometers, you know, smaller one. Those are all really involved. Even that, they only say that. Well, we should only consider the man part of it, which is really weird because the ocean, the sea spray, they all create all kinds of aerosols of all type, you know, of all kinds of chemical species and all that, and they're not interested in those. Okay. Only those type. That's why IPCC picked like 16 different types. And then for, for, for the natural factor, only volcano and solar. And then solar one, like you, as I told you, 2021, only one of them. If you actually, it's funny. If you look at all the graph numbers, you know, they call it forcing, right? They did the forcing. The solar one is so small. If, if IPCC were to be correct, there's nothing to be done. There's, no one should be arguing about this, but it's a very serious you know, I don't know. I, my my good colleague keep telling me don't use the word fraud, but it's as close as possible to a fraud, because you have twenty seven different one, and some of it can be very large. The changes, the amplitude changes, right? Can be point even that number actually in terms of normal sense is not that big, but in terms of sun's energetic, is very very large. Okay, point three. They say it must be only less than point one. I mean, factor of four is a big deal in terms of that. Plus that they haven't account for the orbits, obviously, because they do another one of those fast hand waving <laughs> to say that the Earth have no season. So everybody just look at year to year and then just average them out. Because my primary thing of visiting the orbits and the sun is basically that is the whole evolution of the system. You know, if you want to treat this problem properly, right? Including like I even hint that it will be a volcano and earthquake together because which one is causing what? I don't know, but it's all connected to the orbits because one of the new insight that I have after some 20 years, that was like maybe 10 years ago, I understood this because I started to ask the question, basic question, all this basic area, but I want to tell you is that it's, it's all about matter, your perspective and how you, what kind of knowledge that you have. If you look at the catalog of the Smithsonian volcanic eruption, you ask yourself, okay, we have the timing when it erupts, right? Isn't that a good idea to first understand what does it look like? It turn, Does it really... You know, over one whole year, go around the sun, uh, Earth going around. Does it really have any equal probability distribution on January to February and all that? All the same? No. Actually, there are seasonality, and that's once that immediately tell me that oh, that's a fact. This is why the relative distance between the sun and Earth could be a very important factor, right? We don't fully understand, but at least signs of this kind of this level of complexity you have to approach from this sort of empirical observation base rather than model nonsense model i have to say it is nonsense right it is basically gospel in people like to say uh, uh, garbage in garbage out people like to say that i say garbage in gospel out because <laughs> this thing turned into a gospel because they use that for policy right they say oh then immediately you got to do this do that and you know? maybe i should pause for a moment because i I tend to cover many, many subjects very quickly in so many levels. I can slow it down and say, 
one by one and explain things, of course. But just to give you a big overview that when you try to talk about weather and climate, please, that simplistic notion of uh, carbon dioxide being that control knob, the thermostat in your room, it's uh, just, it's so flawed that I don't know what to do when people keep insisting on that sort of approach. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with you entirely. I've uh, been following this for a while, and I think there comes a point in which it's, it's, it's almost like a religious experience or maybe breaking out of a cult when you just sit with yourself and ask yourself, is it really conceivable that this gigantic earth is having all of its temperature decided by the tiny little particles of CO2, the tiny little particles, and specifically the things that we as human beings produce, you know, not the CO2 from volcanoes, not the CO2 from uh, natural processes, but specifically it's you, it's you, you, yes, you yes. are the problem. You are the problem and your CO2 emissions from your car and from your stake they're the things that are like the control knob of this entire giant planet and this entire giant sun. Now, we've you mentioned the, my podcast with um, Professors Happer and Professor Linzen, and also the, the podcast with Professor Tom Nelson. These three, I go into the discussion on climate science, and I look at their work and their perspective, and I think they, they're excellent conversations. And I, uh, in particular, Professor William Happer's discussion has been one of the most viewed episodes from my podcast. I think it's got something like 80,000 or 90,000 uh, views nice. on YouTube and a lot more downloads on the podcast which was surprising for me because most of my audience is interested in economics and Bitcoin, but this one went pretty viral and a lot of people uh, are listening to it. It's, I think it, it's really eye-opening because it's very refreshing to just hear this idea where you're not coming at it from this set conclusion. As right. you mentioned, this is how the IPCC process works, where people come at it with, here's the conclusion and here's a bunch of numbers that justify the conclusion. And if you come up with any conclusion other than that one, well, then you're just not going to be part of the conversation. I think this is how it works. And we can, we can discuss the corruption of this process, but I think maybe more interesting for us is I'm really curious about your view of the impact of the sun 
and the impact of the Earth's rotational cycles on the weather. So if you if, if you could put aside all of the problems with the IPCC and the way in which they right, um, right. market the sun and just market the science there and try and focus on this. And for me, I mean, I'll, I'll begin with my kind of, I'll give the listener my kind of intuitive way of, to think, of thinking about this. The temperature between, uh, in one day, in one city, in one location, temperature can vary up to 30, maybe 40 degrees Celsius in a day. Um, just between day and night. And the main difference between day and night is the sunshine. The sun is shining during the day, and so everything is warm. And then during the night, there's no sun, and then everything becomes cold. Uh So there's an enormous impact that we see and feel every single day. It's undeniable. Anybody who's ever been outside knows (laughs) that the sun has a significant impact. When the sun shines on you, you feel warm. When you go into the shade, you feel cooler. In fact, on the same day in the sun, if you're sitting in the shade and you move into the sun, you feel like you're, you've gotten 10 extra degrees Celsius warmer just by moving into the sun. So clearly, there's a huge impact on this. When you look at the, even the most hysterical science on carbon dioxide, when they talk about what is the impact of carbon dioxide on Earth, they'll tell you something along the lines of 2 degrees Celsius by oh, 2100 or 1 degree Celsius warmer by 2050. and they're supposed to be scaring you by this, but again, if you snap out of the um, cult-like programming, if you stop watching TV and just think about this, what's one degree Celsius over 50 years when you go through a 30 degrees Celsius shift every day? I mean, it's, it's really measurement error. So even by the most hysterical scientific studies that tell you that carbon dioxide is going to destroy life on Earth and that this is a complete crisis, you're talking about one degree as an average measured over 50 years when really there is no, there's no meaning to one degree because you're looking at measurements that are just, um, ultimately, this is, you're picking up the noise in the measurement. One degree is just noise. It depends on where you're taking the data, when you're taking the data. And there are so many things that influence how you're taking the data that really one degree as an average over 50 years is arguably going to just be a function of how you're performing the measurement. It's not going to be something uh, really noticeable, and it's nothing like the change that we get every day from the sun of 20, 30 degrees that you get every day just by going from nighttime to daytime. So why? Uh, this is kind of my intuitive way of trying to think of the sun, but tell us more from your perspective, from your research, the Maunder Minimum and the book that you wrote on this, what is the case for the sun affecting the climate? Make the case for us. Okay, it's it's very clear, and 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 the the impact is very very simple. It's really just the amount of light, okay, the energy, the energetics, and indeed it's subtle in the sense that beside the season, it's it's basically how you modulate the two like every two winters. You know, basically you, you modulate from the extreme, you know, the summers and the winter. They know to some, and those amount of changes. From let's say monominum to now, we estimate the energetic is of a f- even few watt per minute. That's more than sufficient to provide all the energy. And the mechanism in which it does this is very simple. You evaporate more of the ocean, water vapor came out. So that's one of the number one primary greenhouse effect that you added the ag- additional. So in the sense that always they try to frame it that, oh, there's not enough energy from the sun change, the tiny changes. That's completely ridiculous because they ignore the season. And then another method that we show, of course, all of these are all been published, of course. All my work is all been published. When I say those things, I don't just randomly wave my hand. 
that's part of the essence of being a scientist, right? You write it out and explain it. If anybody wants to criticize that, okay, criticize. Show me I'm wrong, so I, I quit. You know, I just say, no, that's wrong, okay? But anyway, another method is actually how the sun distributes or the sun modulates the equator to pole temperature gradient. In fact, that is one of the key index that uh, promoted by Dick Linson for a long to explain even longer time scale, like geology plus, you know, all these other every few thousand year kind of time scale, you know, the Holocene changes over the last 10,000 years, things like that. It's very prominent, very large amplitude, every thousand years, every 2,000 year type of uh, of oscillation in the climate system. And those are all well observed in in, in a lot of this uh, paleo archive, you know, the paleoclimatic archive that, that you know, from ocean sediment to, to everywhere that you actually have this kind of information. So the sun does that by indeed modulating the internal system. Right, how the ocean current can move basically, and then of course, main energy all deposited near the equator, right? And then it is actually the equator to pole that actually show. I, I show I show in one particular paper that I wrote that I tried to explain why does climate vary every sixty years or so. What it does is essentially, if you want the detail, is basically it modulates the equator to pole temperature gradient, including the moisture. So it actually was able to modulate the Arctic. So all the things kind of top down, coming from the Arctic where you kind of tap into the, you know, the North Atlantic situation with the thermal hairline circulation, the large scale circulation, that you can actually do this. And then you can even have effects all the way back from the Atlantic feedback into the El Nino system. Because El Nino system is not only every two to eight years, you can show that there are multi-decadal and decadal modulation of the El Nino system, the ENSO. So a lot of these are explained like that. Indeed, it's all just by tiny changes of the sunlight. From the estimate of the sun perspective, I have not only come from the point of view of watching the sun, because also no funding agency will let you 400 years of funding to study this. So myself and a group, when I was working at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, I was there for 32 years, so I quit <laughs> 2022. We were the pioneer in terms of... Uh, Instead of observing the sun, we observe other sun-like stars in, you know, in astronomy. It just There are at least 200 million of this uh, habitable kind of uh, sun-like system in the Milky Way itself. So we are basically watching all these other sun-like stars over time, collecting all the data. Over 40 years, you're beginning to have a lot of statistics, you know. And then you're beginning to see how does it behave. Does it similar to the sun or different from the sun? We indeed found that from this sort of pool or large sample of star, Watching over 30, 40 years, we show that, you know, all the behavior that we know from sunspot alone, you know, that sunspot data that started from uh, Galileo Galilei in 1610 or so, basically, it's nothing or extraordinary. It's just we see that all the time. We see the sun going into the modern minimum, the sun, other star going out of the modern minimum. So it's very up and down, which is the one that requires only to be changing on the order of 0.4% of the irradiance light output. 0.4% is really not large, but it is constrained from physics that observation of the star shows that this is very, very reasonable estimates. Okay? And, and the, the problem in this topic is actually that the theoretical development of this topic is not sufficiently sophisticated or good enough to give you number. That's why my approach from on this topic has been always been observation, observation, observation first. Through observation, you try to put a constraint back and then see whether it works. And then, of course, model will, like Linson would like to say, model has its own use. 
not the kind of abuse that running endless projection, you know, like all this random drawing or forcing, you know, making the system so crazy. It's just not possible. Plus, they always remember, even in their best version of climate model, some of them don't conserve mass. So it's a problem. This climate model problem is huge, by the way. So it cannot be used for a lot of this purpose that they claim they, they are using it for. Okay. You cannot even check the sea level using a, 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 a climate model that don't, don't conserve mass because that's a problem. Because when you build the water from the, from the ice sheets to pour to the ocean, you already have a problem. What happened? How do you account for this? So they, there's a lot of problems. But I'm just saying that the model has never been able to do any such thing that they say that they can do. This is why there's a huge gap of uh, communication. And also, of course, you have to remember, a lot of those activists and uh, people like from IPCC and all the, what you call, pseudo, they are not scientists, but they are spokesperson. They are willing to cross a lot of the, what you call, unethical line in the sense that they're willing to lie. And then some of us scientists who endlessly want to talk about details and then not willing to lie even, bend even one bit. Obviously, we look like we're wishy-washy and all people shouldn't be listening to us and all that. But if you care for the truth, you really need to know a bit of the detail. That's why I apologize to your audience a bit today for me to kind of say so many words, so many things. But indeed, it is a hard work, a careful step of accumulating this knowledge. So, yes, the sun causes because of all these other factors that we've been studying all these years that I've been doing. Okay. And then, of course, now we finally, I, I wouldn't say we solve all the problems. By the way, there's another class of problem that I must uh convey to your audience because it is a breakthrough in terms of my own work because I spent 30 years to try to get to the stage where we can ask the basic question. Is all this thermometer data stage uh, record that they show you, the global temperature curve that you're so used to, okay, for 150 years or 100 years, are they reliable or accurate? We actually show, we publish, we publish now a formal paper documenting all the problem in the thermometer station data. A job that they were supposed to do before they start interpreting. You imagine, imagine that you see an observation. If the observation is not reliable or good, then how can you interpret? You cannot even begin to interpret. So they say assign that to CO2. It's not possible because the data is wrong. What we show is that all this global temperature record that they show is highly contaminated by urban heat island effect. We actually are able to demonstrate that very convincingly. We published a paper. That's why it took us two and a half years to get the paper published. I don't mind. It takes that long. Where am I going? I'm going nowhere. <laughs> I'm here. I just want to do science, enjoy myself a little bit, do my work. That's it. You know, don't, don't have to go wishy washy, um, this and that, whatever. Doesn't matter to me. I try to produce. So we produce this paper. And then, of course, now, now, now we are hoping that IPCC maybe will pay attention. Okay. By the way, the nature of, uh, just to, not to say anything, but just to give you an example, that the quality of our work is so high and uh, I guess the best that you can find, you know, is that the IPCC co-chairman, uh, you know, of working group six, Professor Pan Mao Jai, actually has already known about our work long ago, five, six years, 10 years ago. So he cited all our work in his own papers. But when it comes to the actual IPCC report, not a word. Shh. Don't tell anyone. I mean, this is another example. You understand what I mean, right? I mean, this is what I mean, but, but I'm glad also that at least some of the good work are being noticed. You know, our work is very good, actually. If, if anybody find anything wrong, including your audience, tell me, that's all. You know, 
If you need to go on it, you go to my webpage, right? To look for all our publication. Yes, it'll be series-sign.com, right? C-E-R-E-S-sign.com. And you can find a lot of information of our work there. We are actively pursuing all areas of science. In fact, I'm very happy that 2022, I get out of Harvard. So now I can pursue every topic that I'm, I love to research. You know, I, I'm one of those, you know, good old days. <laughs> oh, you, you're saying this thing now? Let me check, let me check. You know, that kind of stuff. So I'm a very curious person. So I researched. So we've done some work on uh, COVID this year. We produced two papers, things like that. So it's very interesting for me yeah, as a scientist that I continue to be able to carry out my work. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I definitely sympathize with that. I think there is, uh, there's an enormous amount of science that you can do once you're out of yeah, yeah, traditional yeah. scientific institutions because most of what you do in scientific institutions is make work rather than scientific work. It's uh, oh, yeah. how to get the papers published in the right place and how to talk to the right people and how to... No, write not only that, I can assure you that I'm not even allowed... By the way, to get on your postcard, you know what I'm supposed to do if I were to work at CFA? <laughs> to fall in paperwork. They make me do paperwork to, to accept one of these or else they the director will come. How come you didn't tell us that you're going to go on this podcast and this and that, you know, that kind of thing. Like, for example, when I appear on Tucker Carlson the other day, I mean, I would never be allowed to be on Tucker Carlson. So I either have to stand on my ground and say, why you're trying to censor me? I, I don't understand that. I mean, they actually have been doing that a lot to me. That's why I kind of after thirty some years, he said, "Now I have nothing to prove. I am I, I'm not interested in those old names. You know, I'm not interested in medals and this and that, whatever or what. I don't care. All I say is that okay, I had enough. Goodbye. And mainly because they also kind of want to do that COVID injection on me. I don't want it, so I don't want to have that. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, no, I live I, as a free person. <laughs> no, I, I I totally understand. The on the urban uh, heat effect. I'll just add a little bit of context for listeners who are not familiar. This is something that I've always suspected. I, I studied climate at graduate school. I did my PhD in, yes. in, in a topic related to this, and I remember that you know this was something that was covered that there was an urban heat effect. Uh -huh. Any city, if you take uh, if you measure the temperature in a city and then you measure the temperature surrounding the city, the city is always warmer. Which makes sense. Cities contain a lot of machines, a lot of cars, a lot of engines, and a lot of concentration of people next to each it's other. And concrete, they have yeah, concrete heat absorption. And concrete, of course, yeah, the concrete absorbs heat a lot more than uh, natural soil does. And so he, cities are hotter. And so when you're looking at temperatures, at records of temperatures that are 100 or 200 years ago, uh, 200 years long, you know, whatever city you're looking at, it's a lot more urban today than it was 100 years ago. So the temperatures data that we have for New York from 100 years are from a much smaller city than today's New York. So clearly there's a lot less urban heat island effect. And that's true for New York and it's true for every city in the world. Today it's almost, I, I can't think of any city that wouldn't be bigger today than what it was 100 years ago. So clearly, there's going to be some bias in the data that leads to this data showing up warming. And of course, most data is close to cities because that's where people had thermometers. 100 years ago, people weren't putting thermometers out yep. in the middle of the ocean, and they weren't putting thermometers out in the middle of empty fields as much as they do now because they weren't hysterical about the weather. They were a little less... Uh, superstitious and they were a little bit more scientific about it they did not think that they could be ruining the weather and so they weren't freaking out enough to go and put thermometers everywhere as we do right now but so the reliable data that we have is mostly for urban areas that's where we had the thermometers 100 years ago and 50 years ago and that's going to naturally show an increase in the temperature 
and yeah, you, you you've done great work to illustrate this and to show how it's. Um, oh, it, not only that, we've. There's another aspect of the problem that is rather nasty, and I'm sorry to force the audience again, but the detail is so crucial because if you don't understand that, you will be shaking your head every day when you see a headline: the warmest in 125,000 years, this and that. You'll be so confused. But be assured, the reason why I stand here very clearly saying is that a lot of this product that they, when they show you the thermometer, especially from the NOAA, National Oceanic uh, Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, our US government agency, Department of Commerce, they are the, what you call the center for collecting all the data from World Meteorological Organization also. So for worldwide, actually, we collected all the data plus our own US. The problem is that every time they come in, all the data come in, you know, from past record, adding new data, what they do is that they run a computer program. <laughs> that is the part that we finally show in 2022 how bad those computer algorithm is, which means you are seeing things that they are being adjusted up and down with no factual, what you call, documentation of actually happened. It's so crazy to the point where I think people don't believe us. They thought we're lying. But we published one more paper with a lot of those, Euro for example, our first paper was published with a lot of those European meteorological agency. Some of them are very pro IPCC, but in terms of thermometer data, they are willing to give us information. Like for example, in a given station, let's say Vienna or some other places, right? You would have a record, okay, what year, what year, we move the thermometer this way and this way, we change the color, whatever, you know, the shading, and then where we move up, move down, right? So they give us those called history data, the meta history data. They give us that. Plus that one of my colleagues that is truly, truly, by the way, this thing is also, I would say God blessing because you know why? A colleague of mine named Peter O'Neill from UCD, University College Dublin. In about 2010, he started interested in this global historical climatic network, the data from Ireland, basically. He need only like two, three stations he wants to know. But he just ended up downloading the version of NOAA that produced, but they update every days, every few days, you know? So he start collecting a lot of this different version of the update. This is where we can show that their computer algorithm, from Monday, the adjustment is this way up, from Tuesday is doing different thing, from Wednesday is doing another different thing, okay? And it's so crazy that we actually talk to the NOAA guy. They refuse to acknowledge it. They call it daily flutter and all that kind of thing. They come up with a lot of this voodoo stuff. Instead of actual admission uh, um, that say that. So NOAA to the point that they only want to use this computer algorithm. You know what? They even say that we no longer need the historical meta station for each station. If we can get it, we must have that. Or else you don't know what reality is. This is the kind of very, very crazy problem. Okay. And then if you want to know even more crazy stuff is that this algorithm like that, one of the properties that it tends to do, do, do is that because homogenized means that you have a station, let's say somewhere, you try to buy the nearby, let's say within 50 kilometers or less, right? That you try to make them all should have similar trend around the area, right? But the problem is that if one of the station is urbanized, then all the other, let's say you pick five, so four, the other four will be contaminated by that urban station. We call it urban heat, urban blending effect. We show that for, for Japan. Japan is the number one urbanized city and USA temperature data. So things like that. These are all very, very serious problems. And guess what? When did we publish those papers? 
<laughs> October or November of 2023. Look at how long already. And it, by the way, because I'm so independent scientist, we have no funding. So this is how it takes also a long time. For me, we just have to go by our sheer brain power and then limited computer, everything, right? To, to get to that stage and publish paper that makes sense, you know? And now it's, now the ball game is up to them, but we have plenty more to do, of, obviously, to try to think about, you know, how, how should we think about climate? For example, you really, there is a thing called climate. Urban climate is urban climate. But they're very different from the rural climate. You know, just the same like if you think of even the election map. <laughs> you know, the urban city will work for something, you know, the D, and then, and then the, the rural will work for the R, you know what I'm saying, in him. But it's a very interesting phenomenon. We can show you interesting, many, many things that we have done like that. But just to show you now, we're living in a world that is actually quite kind of dangerous where, where a lot of the data interpretation become very, very unclear. And then people are just mixing it up. You know, trying to follow whatever the narrative and dictated by somebody high up there. I don't know who that is, but it's all crazy meme and not about facts, not about truth, not about evidence, not about science. Never mind all the proper scientific approaches all been thrown into the garbage can, basically. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. Really? I My... you, you, you guys already got headache, right? So many problems. <laughs> there are even more. <laughs> don't talk about ocean, please. The ocean parameterization is a serious problem. I mean, just the way they treat salt and, you know, all these things. Oh, my God. I, I, I dig into all of those. And I found them to be all problematic. This is why it's so crazy. I tell you, there's not a, a day that I have nothing to do. You know, I just every day I'm doing some of this kind of stuff just to find out more, just to feel a, a bit more at peace. What do I know about these things? You know, it's just terrible. The state of the science on climate is terrible. It's not good, actually. Yeah, I think anybody who's honest, who examines this, realizes there's really nothing scientific about the methodology. These models are essentially sock puppetry. I mean, it's these people, it's it's really like sock puppetry. You put a sock on your hand, yep. and then you move the sock, and you say, look, the sock says this. And mm -hmm. there's no reason to presume that the sock is in any way authoritative yeah. any more than a model, because a, mo a computer model will say anything that you want. I mean, you can make the assumptions that you want, and you can make it say whatever you want. And that's not the scientific method. The scientific method is not about making models, but we see this. All of these pseudosciences that are running wild in the world today, they're all based on models. Macroeconomics is a bunch of models. Climatology is a bunch of models. Epidemiology is a bunch of models. And it's it, it allows people in power to just do whatever they want because they can make the models say whatever they want and then their media will regurgitate and say, oh, look, we have to flatten the curve because the model says we're going yep. to get 700 million people are going to die next weekend. The one out of seven people on Earth are going to die because of this and some crazy stuff. And now you have to listen to what we say or else everybody will die. And same thing with the weather, same thing with economics, same thing with all of those things. There's really nothing scientific about it. My theory, my explanation for why this is the case, and the reason that I am constantly banging on on this issue and on other issues, people sometimes are just puzzled. Like this guy talking about Bitcoin, why is he talking about climate? Why is he talking right, about right. economics? Why it's is he talking about... a bit. <laughs> It is very interrelated, and I think understanding money, in particular Bitcoin and fiat money, and the difference between the two is key towards understanding why this is the issue. And from my perspective, which I discuss in the fiat standard, the, the problem is that we live in a world in which money is constantly being debased. Money is constantly losing its value. And so things are becoming more and more expensive. 
And this creates a problem and it creates a solution. The problem is that people are upset because the things that they want, the things they're used to are becoming less and less affordable because prices are going up and they're not happy about it. But it also creates an avenue for a solution because on the other side, you know, that wealth is going somewhere. You're getting poorer, not just because the world is built in a way to get you poorer. You're getting poorer because somebody is destroying the value of your money and they're taking it and that someone is the government. So you're getting poorer, but the government has extra money on its hands and the government is very good at lying and doing propaganda. And so the governments are naturally interested in promoting these ideas that help A, explain inflation and B, help you get over inflation, hide inflation and think that it's not caused by uh, money printing. It's not caused by them stealing from you. It's caused by the weather or it's caused by climate or caused by all kinds of weird things. So for me, it, scientists make mistakes all the time. Scientists can be wrong all the time. Scientists can come up with stupid conclusions all the time. What happens in a free society with a hard form of money in which the government doesn't get to rob everybody through inflation, is that there is the corrective mechanism of the free market. In other words, if Harvard goes and publishes crazy pseudoscience in, say, nutrition or climate, and it graduates thousands of people who believe insane things about nutrition, well, those people go out to the world and work as nutritionists, and then they get all of their customers sick because they feed them bad food, and then those people go bankrupt you know, the customers die, the dietitians go bankrupt, and then the Harvard Nutrition School doesn't do well because people don't want to go to their nutritionists. There's an open market and people realize it. And then another university will, which doesn't fall into that mistake will thrive because their nutritionists are not killing people. So you have that kind of free marketplace of idea, and you'd have the same thing with climate and with all kinds of scientific issues. But you don't have that when the money is hijacked because when, you, when the money is hijacked... Oh, yeah. The funding for all the scientific departments at all the universities comes from the same source so that there is no corrective mechanism. So all the nutritionists, all the climatologists, all the macroeconomists, they're all making the same mistake. They're all repeating the same mistake and there's no corrective mechanism. They could spend decades falling into that same mistake. Now, it's not just innocent mistakes that get promoted. It's mistakes that are conducive for the people who print money to achieve their ends. Okay. And specifically in this situation, you know, you look at the history of climate and the history of environmental hysteria, it's not a coincidence that it started in the 1970s when the inflation really took off in the 1970s because that's when people started asking questions. Why is the price of everything going up? Why is the price of gas going up? Why is the price of this going up? And the answer was we're running out of all of that stuff initially. People thought, okay, we're running out of all of that stuff. And so that was heavily promoted for a while. Oh, yeah. And and then when we didn't run out of that stuff, when it came clear that, look, here we are 50, 60 years later, we have more oil than ever. We have more of everything than we ever uh, yeah. did. Yeah, <laughs> I keep finding it. Yeah, Yeah. so now the, we still have the science telling us that it is a problem to consume that thing, that you shouldn't consume that thing, not because we're running out, but because we're consuming so much of it that it's going to destroy the planet. And so don't worry about the fact that oil is becoming more expensive, that you can't afford gasoline. You have to worry about the fact that if you consume gasoline, you're going to ruin the climate. And so therefore, we need to get rid of the climate. Yeah, well, why not? Yeah. And so this is where this is, this is how I see the dynamic. Your money's getting destroyed 
and the value of the money is going to finance these pseudosciences that are giving explanations for why you shouldn't actually eat meat anyway because meat is bad for you because it ruins the weather and because it ruins the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and it because it ruins your health. And you shouldn't consume oil anyway. You should go back to 5th century windmill technology because that's going to be <laughs> how we run our modern societies. And I, I, I think that's my explanation for how this... Uh, pseudoscience and this very blatantly wrong methods of doing science continue to survive. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, pretty much agree with everything you say. It's, indeed, it's a very troublesome state that we're in now. I mean, humanity seems to be not uh, head towards uh, what you call <laughs> the the enhanced uh, proliferation of even more humanities, but it's just anti-human all the time. And uh, we are not supposed to, and and all based on lies. Actually, a lot of these things about lies, right? Uh, you can say that even the the notion of a fossil fuel is going to run out is is one of those also that you know is very unsettled question, right? And then uh, one industry versus another, and then this is why ultimately I think you probably have heard of this economist by the name of Julian Simon. I mean, Julian Simon has a pre really brilliant uh, insight and ideas, you know, about about how humanities, we're not limited by all these material things. It's actually <laughs> our human mind and creativity, innovation, basically. Those are the true recipe of, of freedom, actually, for, for something. To, to, it's almost unlimit, unlimited, actually, in terms of space, any, any material things, that we really have plenty of it around. It's just uh, the concentration is low, so the cost will be high, this and that, right? I mean, so yeah, indeed. I I see I see that I I don't know actually a lot of this. The of course I'm not too familiar since I'm not historian or economist. I can see that all these things is not just randomly and coarsely just come into being like this. I really think that it's been a very systematic thing. If you look back into history, historical and knowledgeable like person like yourself would already figure out that there is some. <laughs> vector and some kind of propagator that that do this sort of thing and then try to push things into one direction one way or another right i mean it's terrible to to see that essentially that i guess generation after generation despite we can build the greatest uh, cathedrals and all this stuff that multi-generational kind of stuff that you have all this kind of a really even more evil stuff underneath all of this <laughs> trying to push humanity towards a uh, Killing ourselves or something, you know, be replaced by robots and things like that. It's, it's just terrible waste of uh, humanity, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm very pro-human, by the way. So I'm pro-population growth. I'm pro. I'm pro a lot of this sort of thing. But I, I'm, I, I, I keep it to myself a bit because uh, scientists, I'm, I don't. But I do research them. Like, like I can give you an example of one problem that I research because simply because of my personal reason, like my wife was pregnant with my kids. So they keep talking about how bad this mercury is, you know, in the cold, the tiny amount of mercury they come out. By the way, it's no more than a hundred tons, you know, that burn per year, hundred tons. You know how much, <laughs> how much mercury, millions and millions of tons, 200 million tons in the oceans and everywhere. And then even the soil could do this. And then the idea is that they want to control, limit coal. They want to kill. By the way, coal essentially got killed by that sort of thing. And coal, I can tell you, what do you want it? Flintstone, they know this coal. I mean, they're going to hit on your head, but you're supposed to use it to burn and generate electricity. It's a good thing. If there's any amount of bad pollution, we'll try to control it. And then 
you know, spend some money doing that. That's fine. But don't say that we don't use coal. The coal is very useful. We should use it. And then this scare of one scare after another, right? I mean, first is carbon dioxide, right? Then, then the scare is mercury. So coal got a double whammer. By the way, most of the fossils have trace amount of uh, mercury, of course. But this mercury could never, ever harm it, by the way. I concluded that conclusively in the sense that biochemically, it is not possible. It's always binded to something else, like selenium immediately. The strongest binding is that. So it is not possible. So every time you have trace amount of selenium, this mercury will be totally ineffective. When you form metal mercury, it go through a process that have nothing to do with how much elemental mercury you have. So it's one of those highly misleading things. By the way, I personally, myself, wrote so many of these, uh, you know, as a private citizen. Back then, my job doesn't allow me to do that. So I consulted many people. I, I, I studied for 10 years this topic. It's actually a bit of a fraud. It's just a fraud. And this mercury stuff... Just leave me no confident that whatever the EPA is trying to do, whatever the FDA is trying to do, because they forgot that, you know, they, they essentially claim this mercury go into the oceans and then get assembled into the basically tissues of the fish. So when you eat the fish, your, your wife pregnant, then it's going to get hurt the, the IQ of the babies that's born. Think about the chain of which that it goes into the ocean, it got amplified, and then mercury elemental by itself is not toxic, and it's the metal mercury, it's the CH, you know. Yeah, you got to add CH to the, the, the mercury to get that CH3. So this is crazy. It's impossible, actually. And But then they amplify, they amplify to the scare story that is totally so, I feel so sad because a lot of women actually ended up get less nutritious. Fish is very nutritious because just by the omega-3, it's good enough. It's never, in fact, all the Japanese nation, the whole country of Japan should be completely crazy if this metal mercury is killing them. They are eating whales, by the way, even higher concentration of methamercury. It's impossible. It's just crazy stuff. Even in history, it's just not. And But then they were able to package things and make it do like that. And if, if the sea issue is so urgent, look at that. It disappeared already from the <laughs> from their agenda. <laughs> you will come back. <laughs> Don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and it's, it's, it's very fascinating, of course, that there's so much hysteria about um, tiny particles of mercury in coal yeah. going into the fish that you eat. And uh, there's a lot higher concentration in the injections that they give to pregnant uh, women and to newborn children. Yeah, that's apple mercury. That's from the, yeah, from the preservative of the, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to believe that that's not a problem when it goes through. Right, right, exactly. But. Uh, the, the fish is a problem but that's a story for another day i yes. wanted to go back to your discussion of julian simon i'm a big fan of julian simon in my book principles of economics i discuss his uh, work very good uh can you see the screen that i'm sharing now at this point okay no okay so this is a, a graph that shows oil consumption against proven reserves and when you look at this graph initially you think there's only one line where's the other line right but there's only one line i can see <laughs> No, there is another line. If you look near zero, that's ah, okay. total oil consumption. So this oh, okay. is where you, if you're measuring oil consumption in billions of barrels mm-hmm. and you're comparing it to proven reserves, what you see is basically consumption is uh, imperceptible. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny little fraction of proven oil reserves. So right. as you can see here, proven oil reserves in 1980 were 700 billion barrels and consumption was I, I don't have the data in front of me, but it was right. something approximately zero, basically, compared yeah. to when you compare it to 700 billion barrels. And here we are. For the eight, oh, give it 10 billion. Yeah, and here we are. Uh, 10 billion, you said? 
Yeah, let's give it that number. It's within that scale. That I'm just estimating. Yeah, it's something like 10 billion or something like that. And here we are 40 years later in 2020. Proven reserves are 1,700 billion uh-huh. barrels. So yeah. we've more than doubled the proven reserves. And the consumption is still basically approximately zero. We're not really consuming anything when you put it in perspective against the proven reserves. So... This chapter was heavily inspired by the work of Simon. Because if you look at it, we see that we just find more and more oil. No matter how much we consume, we always end up finding more oil than we consume. Because the more we look for oil, the more reserves we find. And the reserves that we find are not all the oil that is out there. They are the oil that we have found in the places that we look for. So if we wanted to really look at the amount of oil that exists out there, it's going to be a lot, a lot higher, I think. Oh, um, yeah. We cannot measure it, and it's not economical to go and uh, look everywhere. Right. The whole thing about oil is an economical issue. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And again, this, in this other figure, in, uh, also in Chapter 3 in um, yeah, Principles focus. of Economics, we look at the 50 basic commodities, and we look at what happened to their price between 1980 and 2020. Uh-huh. If we're not measuring the price in the dollar because the dollar is an inflationary currency that is losing right. value all the time, if you measure it in terms of the average wage uh, and mm-hmm. what has happened to the wages and what has happened to the amount of goods, you see that pretty much everything has gotten a lot cheaper in cheaper. those 40 years. Everything has gotten a lot cheaper in the 40 years. Everything is between 24% cheaper to 80, 86% cheaper. Uh-huh. We're making more of everything, and everything is becoming more and more affordable for us because we are getting better at producing it, and we are dedicating more right. and more time to producing it. And this is, this is the key difference between thinking in the economic way versus thinking in the kind of static, classic, uh, geologic way, wherein the geologists think that Earth is one big bucket and human beings are just drinking everything in the bucket and we're running out of it. Whereas the economists understand that the Earth is enormous beyond our ability to even conceive of how much stuff exists there. And there is no bucket there. We make the bucket. We are making the resources. And the more human beings exist, the more buckets of resources we make available for us. That's why 40 years later, everything becomes cheaper the more we consume. And that's why 40 years later, we have more oil reserves than when we started. And that's why our Mm -hmm. consumption is practically imperceptible compared to the reserves because we we keep getting better at looking for them. Mm -hmm. But... I I mean, this is something that I've believed for quite a while and I've studied and understood for quite a while and wrote it in my book. But one point that I didn't get into in my book, which I'm interested in your perspective on, uh-huh. is the idea that oil is not necessarily from fossils. I think this is, I find it very compelling, to be honest. I'm not entirely sure of it, but I can't argue against it because I think there are several arguments that make this clearly convincing in my view. First of all, uh, the, the first and most important thing is that if you look at asteroids and uh, other uh, objects that come from space, we find hydrocarbons inside those objects. And I don't think there were dinosaurs on those meteors and on these asteroids. Secondly, I remember seeing this in the south of Turkey. There's a place where there are natural fire coming out of Earth because there's gas reserves there. And this fire has been raging for thousands of years. People have written about it for thousands of years. It's mentioned, I think, even in the Bible. And this has just been a fire that's been going on over there. And it's that's a lot of dinosaurs. If that's dead dinosaurs and dead di- trees, <laughs> that's a lot of dinosaurs and trees to be burning there for thousands and thousands and thousands of years nonstop right, right. and coming out of it. And we already know that the center of Earth is 
very hot. We already know that there is a lot of boiling energy in the center of Earth. So why is it? I, th- I think here's the thing. I think the, the natural assumption should be that these hydrocarbons are naturally occurring in Earth. I don't, and I think it would, the onus of proof is on somebody to come and say, no, they don't naturally occur. They only occur when living micro, when living organisms die and disintegrate, and then we get fossil fuels from them. I think that's a stretch because why is it that, why is it that these things can only happen from living form? Why is it that we can only get oil out of living things? Why can't oil just manifest on earth? like all these many other things that manifest on Earth, and like it manifests on bodies outside of Earth? First and, first and foremost is the... Uh, no, I think this is a very, very interesting question. I, I actually can tell you that I am not focusing on this too much, but I'm also a quick learner and fast uh, reader, which means I've been checking this out because Tucker Carlson was very interested in that question. So I, I, I just tried to persuade him not to go too far in that, but I, I explained in a minute why. But if you believe, subscribe to that framework of thinking of uh, Julian Simon, then I think it's useful to talk about this. Because what we know is this. By now, we know this. In 2009 or so, at least you can demonstrate in a lab, right? You can actually squeeze the methane with some catalyst, squeeze the matting down to the precise condition that fit about mental condition about 40 to 50, 150 miles in. So a thousand degree and maybe three gigapascals or about three billion times, right? Stronger than uh, pressure. That you actually can make complex hydrocarbon from there. And then if you ask yourself, where does the carbon uh, methane come from? Methane itself Another demonstration much later, 2018 or so, some lab in, uh, in, in Holland, they were able to say just from pure high, four hydrogen that they were able to make that also. Everything can be made synthetically from the purest of the purest. So it demonstrates beyond doubt. And then you know about Titan, right? The, the moon, Titan, the fastest moon in Saturn, where they found liquid, essentially hydrocarbon, ethane, you know, that form, right? And then ethane and methane, those things down there, huge. Again, there is no requirement of any biological system to do this. Just pure chemistry. There's no biochemistry. It's chemistry. That's it. That yep. it does that. And then and there's the Fischer-Tropsch process, which has been around yeah, for a long time. Yeah, there's also Fischer-Tropsch that already demonstrated. So if you compile all of this, not only that, in astronomy, it's very common that you see very complex, long-chain, poly-aromatic, you know, cyclic aromatic hydrocarbon. Those types are even longer. Benzene, huge kind of uh, molecules all made naturally, detected all the signature in interstellar space and things like that. I mean, even sample from Mars, I don't know if you know, they, they got one of the rocks, uh, 2015, they analyze it. It has benzene, it has all these other complex things, propane in it, right? So, <laughs> first of all, that means that the efficiency and proficiency in which that one can generate such complex hydrocarbon is just universal. It, sh- it can be done easily, really. And then not only that, we can make it in a lab. Again, it's a matter of how much it costs. But the, the problem about all this problem really is actually ultimate retrieval. Retrieval to where we are. Because the most important thing to know is that this one, I talk to a lot of those oil experts, you know, people that drill holes, they keep drilling holes. Because we can, only, we can only drill, you know, we wish that we can invent a technology. By the way, whoever can invent that, hear me out. If you invent that, you'll be the richest dude in the whole world. <laughs> You need to drill in, man, 100, 100 miles in, then you're good. 
But the most we can do is eight miles, like basically no more than that, right? Ten, ten miles, that's it, you know? So it's, it, even if they form that, we have to find out the process in which how this thing go through fissure and fracture and how they get pressure to go up. And then not only that, 40 to 60% of the existing oil field are basically still have a remaining about 50% of the oil is still there. It's just that we can pull it out. That's it. You know, there are plenty of oil. There's a lot of oil, actually. They are everywhere. It's just we cannot retrieve it in that sense, in a convenient form. Not only that, talk about methane hydrate too. You know, a huge amount of methane hydrate off the coast of Georgia and all those areas. But that has not been surveyed because there's a actual ban of surveying our own coastal region by whoever created the law there. Don't allow us. That one, I got the information from the chief scientist of ExxonMobil. <laughs> we haven't had a good map of those areas for almost like 50, 60 years. I mean, ridiculous, actually. A lot of this, what you call backward thinking, it's, it's a bit scary. Even information we don't want to know. I don't know who's hiding what. You know, it's a resource that we should map it out, at least know it. So that one is, is well known. You know, people know it a lot, except we don't know how much we cannot. They don't allow us to do radar work and all that. They don't allow. That's the thing in uh, off, uh, at least our U.S. East Coast. And that's ridiculous. Things like that. Again, let's see that government is our friend in that sense. They're not helping, actually, in that sense. They're just, who are they to tell us not to do that, actually? For humanity's sake, I think I propose that we should go study those things. <laughs> we at least should map it out. Just to know what's available. What, what is the problem? What are we afraid of, right? Information, knowledge? I don't know. Who They, they really want to control the flow of information, everything. It's, it's in that sense. That is not good. But yeah, in, in general, I don't see fossil, this, this field, this, this hydrocarbon, it's a barrier to anything. There's no barrier to this. Plus that, remember, we have other form of generating energy. I mean, nuclear, I mean, I think whoever that concerned about this uh, nonsense about carbon dioxide really should at least be friendly towards uh, nuclear energy, a form of really, they don't want to talk about that too, right? They, they always talk, oh, not enough uranium. No, the ocean got a lot of uranium. It's just not so concentrated. But few million, at least 40 million tons. I mean, on, on the earth, you can get barely a few hundred thousand tons. That's it. You know, that's a lot of things everywhere. It just depends on what you want to do with it, how, at what cost and level of that. Yeah, it, the whole thing is about management. I think it's about engineering a bit, right? So if one or two technological breakthrough, like if we can really drill it down, then we'll have a lot of answers, a lot of things, a lot of access. Just to even create things to get the thing out, you know. Well, we, you'll be like, you know, horizontal drilling is another one of those to get the fracking, you know, the methane stuff. Those are already a total revolution. Though essentially, we are still trying to find a way to shoot ourselves in the foot. Don't get those, and I don't know. Buy buy gas from from all these other places. I don't know. It's not a good thing. So in that sense, that we're sitting on a. Actually, U.S. has a lot of coal. I also know Nigeria for a fact. Nigeria is full of coal. Don't tell people. They stopped that in the 50s and 60s once they found oil. Everybody, nobody talk about coal anymore. I, I studied those things. I checked the whole British surveys. You know, they, they actually have a lot of coal in Nigeria. That, that kind of thing. And just forget it. Nobody talk about that animal. There are a lot of resources around like this. And we just don't tap into this. Well, I say that everything is like put in good use, then it's a good thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, whoever can make money out of that, good, good luck. I mean, that's a good thing, actually. So we do share a lot of uh, interesting, not to just agree to agree with you, but I, 
independently have reached the conclusion that the, our government is not doing anything very special for us. <laughs> they are trying to ruin our healthcare. All I know, I'm very irritated by having to buy all the health insurance that I don't have to buy anything like that. This, this pure mandate is the nonsense, you know, you guys. What are you doing? You know what I mean? I'm not here. I'm a free person. I'm not a slave. <laughs> I agree with you. I uh, I mean, if you, I really, really, now's the part of the conversation where I try and sell you on Bitcoin and try and explain to you why Bitcoin fixes all, all right. of this stuff. Okay, let me learn something. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> ultimately, remember what I was discussing on the issue of why uh, inflation is at the root of this problem, the destruction mm-hmm. of the value of the currency. And so for me, this is also the root of the problem with health. It's the root of the problem of so many things. I mean, people, when they first come across my work, they will make fun of me by saying, oh, this is the guy who thinks inflation is the cause of all of the world's problems. Uh And I say, that's pretty fair. And then if you actually try and listen, you'll see how inflation is, if not the cause of all of the world's problems, at least it's making all of the world's serious problems a lot worse because Uh everything would be a lot better if uh, people's money wasn't made to rob them. If people mm-hmm. had access to a form of money that they could use, A, because people would be able to maintain the wealth that they have without having to kill themselves, and B, perhaps even more importantly, because it would mean that everybody who has money has to be productive for society. Nobody can just have an infinite amount of money because they have access to a money printer that gives them endless money. And so in all of these problems, whether it's the way that science is run or whether it's the way that healthcare systems are run, health insurance, and we discuss all of these things uh, in depth. So if you go on my uh, podcast page with safetydean.com slash podcast and just search for whatever tro- topic, we'll see you know, that we have 200 episodes of the podcast so far, 210 or something like that. And you'll see a discussion of pretty much anything you want and then how the corruption of money ends up contributing to the corruption of this one particular issue. And it's ultimately down to the fact that you create a bureaucracy that has access to infinite amounts of money because it can have access to money from the Federal Reserve, from the uh, government. And then that bureaucracy is insulated from all of its consequences. Uh, If you open a business, if you open a sandwich shop and your sandwiches are not good, you go out of business. Only good sandwich shops remain because... There is no sandwich shop that has access to a money printer that can let it continue to operate even though it makes poisonous or bad or extremely expensive and unaffordable food for people. But with government bureaucracies, anything can be sustained forever. Bad science, bad health insurance policies, um, all kinds of things can continue to be sustained. And so Bitcoin really is the only solution for that. It's the technological solution for this because it is a form of money with a fixed supply. There's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. We've had Bitcoin running for 15 years. Nobody has figured out a way to change the supply of Bitcoin or to increase the production of Bitcoin beyond the schedule. Every 10 minutes, a new amount of Bitcoin is produced. It used to be 50 Bitcoin in the first four years and 25 Bitcoins in the second four years, 12 and a half in the third four years, six and a quarter in this current four-year period, and in another two months' time, it's going to drop to 3.125 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And every four years, it drops by half. So eventually, it stops increasing at around 21 million. We're never going to have more than 21 million Bitcoin. And it's it's a complicated question. You can read my book if you want more details. But effectively, no, it, there are a few things in life that are more certain than the fact that we're never going to have more than 21 million Bitcoin because of the way that Bitcoin works. And so therefore, with the 21 million Bitcoin, if you buy a 
part of Bitcoin, if you have your wealth stored in a part of Bitcoin, nobody can inflate that money. Nobody can finance government agencies that produce pseudoscience by destroying the value of the wealth that you have. And that's why Bitcoin has outperformed pretty much everything over the past 15 years in which it's been operational. Uh, even over the past five years, uh, anybody who's put their money in Bitcoin has outperformed any pretty much any hedge fund, any money manager, any institutional investor, any stock. Bitcoin continues to outperform pretty much everything because it just has this one simple formula wherein we're not going to make more Bitcoin and then the supply stays fixed or only increases at a decreasing rate, whereas the demand is essentially infinite. Anybody in the world can continue to buy more more Bitcoin. And so that's a form of money that allows us to opt out of inflation. And it allows us to opt out of inflation peacefully, allows anybody in the world to opt out of inflation and I mean, um, I, I used to live in Lebanon when they had hyperinflation and because I bought Bitcoin, I did not have to have money in the banks. And when the banking system fell apart, it didn't matter to me. And I think more and more people around the world are experiencing this, where you, if you put your money in Bitcoin, you escape that. And so now you might think here that this is a pitch of me saying, you know, if we just all believe in Bitcoin hard enough, then we all buy Bitcoin and then it will work. There's some truth to that, but in a sense, the genius of Bitcoin is that it doesn't even care if people uh, want to join. It doesn't need marketing. It doesn't have them. It's it's a decentralized thing. It doesn't have any kind of uh-huh. organization or body behind it promoting it. And it's sort of not optional, as I used to, as I usually like to say, because even if most people aren't convinced, it doesn't really matter. The people who aren't convinced are going to be continuing to use government money that's made to rob them, whereas the people who are convinced are going to be using Bitcoin, which is not robbing them. So the wealth in the hands of the people that are in Bitcoin is going to grow, whereas the health and wealth in the hands of people that are in government money is going to continue to decrease over time. And over time, either these people in government money are going to understand this dynamic and save themselves, or if they don't understand their dynamic, they're just going to get poorer and poorer and poorer while the rest of the world gets richer and richer. So it's kind of, it, it, it has an incentive structure that doesn't require activism. It doesn't require us to vote for the government to, uh, to, to force Bitcoin or to make Bitcoin money. It doesn't require us to write letters to the banks and ask the banks to accept Bitcoin. Either they get on the Bitcoin wagon and stop getting robbed, or as we Bitcoiners like to say, they will have fun staying poor, basically. Wow, that's, that's a very good introduction. But uh, yeah, I have to, <laughs> I have not been paying attention to this sort of thing, embarrassingly. But uh, yeah, many people have tried to talk to me about this sort of thing. But there is a puzzle, puzzling thing for me. Where is the transition exchange occur? You have to give the real paper money to you to get the Bitcoin, isn't it, right? You have to bring that traditional wealth to go and exchange to it. And where does that money go is the question. Well, you, you you don't. First of all, I disagree with the real money because government money is not real money. It's, well, it's, it's, it's some form of some form representation for now, isn't it, right? I mean, because after all, you're not going to let me have Bitcoin without giving you something, right? Unless I... I because let's say somebody to start, I don't have no Bitcoin, right? So, yeah, well, you don't have to. You don't have to pay uh, with money. You can sell things for Bitcoin. So a lot of people acquire their Bitcoin oh, yeah. by working for it or selling things for it. So you don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to use government money for it. Um, and initially, the way that Bitcoin started is, 
It started off, one guy made the system for it, and it's like a video game. It's like a computer game where he made the system for it, and he sent it to a mailing list and told the people on the mailing list, hey, I have this thing, and I'm going to start operating it. And when he starts operating it, you start making new blocks, and then with new blocks, new Bitcoins are produced. So anybody can enter the system and mine Bitcoin. And initially, it used to be very simple that you could start your laptop and start mining, run the software, and you will mine your own Bitcoin. So initially, you could have with your own Bitcoin, with your own laptop in 2009, you could have been making something like 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes in early 2009 because there was nobody on the network at that time. So it was, it started off as this kind of very simple game. And then over time, as the production of these coins increased and the number of people who had it increased, people started trading the coins for goods and services and also for money. And then exchanges developed where you could buy and sell that coin. So if I have Bitcoin, I can sell it for money. I can sell it for food. I can sell it for uh, whatever objects that I want. And similarly, if you have things that somebody who has Bitcoin wants, you can exchange those things for Bitcoin. So it's a... It's 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 now a, a, another currency. It's like, say, the Canadian dollar, the U.S. dollar. You can exchange them for one another. You can sell goods for Canadian dollars. You can sell goods for American dollar. It's another currency, but uh, it's not a currency that's made to rob you. It's a currency that's made to allow you to continue to keep your wealth. Yeah, yeah. Which is the stability. But who says the 21 million? <laughs> well, the guy who invented it from the first beginning, he laid out no this. No one knows uh, who he is, right? The Satoshi guy, right? Yeah, he used a pseudonym. He didn't want his identity to be known, and he's That's done a, a good job. Scheme. Of no, no, it is a smart scheme. Yeah, and and yeah. it's been running for fifteen years. You say exactly since January two thousand and nine. Fifteen years now. Wow. Anyway, very interesting. Thanks for this this sort of yeah. thing. I look up. I I, I think in the email that I sent you, I told you that I'd be happy to send you my book. Um, Sorry, so I ignore just... it. Yeah, I should send you my address. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll read. Yeah, but it's very fascinating. Oh, my friend were very early on into this. Of course, then they they probably are very rich now. Yeah, I, I was one of those that never pay attention to this. So <laughs> very bad. <laughs> A lot of people got in early, but you know they bought they bought early, but they sold early as well. Oh, so early, just yeah, getting yeah. in early is not necessarily not the guaranteed answer, to be yeah. rich. <laughs> but uh, yeah. it's uh, it's definitely worth paying attention to because um, even even. Ignoring the... No, no, it is. The point is that there are already two, three guys who want to offer me Bitcoin donation, things like that. So we'll see. Yeah, that's another good way of doing it because the, you know, I mean, uh, another thing to keep in well, mind... My, my that, whole that... entity now is functioned by donations. So yeah, please, you know. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and who knows? I mean, very soon you might be knocked out of your bank, knocked out of your PayPal yes, account. Yes. They might uh, prevent you from having uh, access to payments, and then Bitcoin will be your only uh, way your of getting only, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's, it's good it. to get started on this early. Okay, getting back to the weather and the climate, I mm-hmm. wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on uh, orbital cycles and the Earth's weather? And I something that I've studied a while ago is what is called the Milankovitch. They are they are interrelated. Uh, it's all interrelated. It's a uh, one of the most popular form of a question is basically why does the sun magnetic activity varies? It does come in many different time scales. The sunspot one is obvious, right? 11 years or so, right? Then, then you know, superposed on that, there are many, many time scales. Okay. And then 
the standard theory, the favorite theory is that, okay, this is MHD. This is just basically coupling of uh, Maxwell and Navier-Stokes equation to do this, basically, right? But then when you look at the totality of the evidence, I mean, you realize that, you know, it seems to be not possible for the system to just function, you know, from cell coupling and things like that, that it may require certain external kind of thing. There seems to be evidence for that. And that comes from basically larger planets like Jupiter and Saturn, right? Because even the sun in the, in, Newton realized that long ago, that we are really not the center of the system. We are, we are center of mass is the center of the solar mass, solar system. The sun itself is also doing that. In the, there's certain inertial motion. And it is through that motion that people thought that there are ways in which that you can generate you can at least modulate the fluid flow, the magnetized fluid flow in the sun so that you produce a lot of this. Like one of the famous one is the 60-year cycle that you kind of see. Okay? And that rooted in actually, you know, Jupiter and Saturn, things like that, right? So it is through that mechanism, of course. This is to explain because a system itself, they if they don't have a positive and negative feedback, to do, you will never have any oscillation, really. It will dissipate away. All the system essentially will dissipate. But you need amplifier and then, you know, that sort of mechanism to make it oscillate up and down, up and down. And we seem to observe a lot of this. For example, if you look at the 10,000 years sort of data, you are able to see, let's say, the 200 years kind of time scale. The oscillation is actually keep doing it for 10,000 years. I mean, how, where did the coherency and the energetic come from to maintain such a thing? That's why you can suspect that maybe it's having to do with something more regular, like like the orbits, right? They're quasi-regular. They're not exactly the same. But And then plus, they remember, they are off-plane too. They are not exactly on-planar. Yes, they are slightly off-plane. Off-plane stuff is very, very able to kind of transport a lot of angular momentum, so there are energy involved that you can actually do this. So, yeah, these are all details, obviously, that you need to do. Oh, by the way, I'm one of those who studied that for a long time. The progress is very hard to tell you the truth because really no one know how to... You see, it, it boils down to essentially how much we know how to model the sun's fluid dynamics, the whole thing. And that's a very, very difficult problem. So again, it's a coupling of using all this empirical observation versus the thing. And, and this is part of the reason, by the way, that I got into the orbital dynamics thing very early, right? To try to understand. And But for the simple benefit already that we don't even know Geez, just the projection of the sun uh, on the on the on the earth to get the sunlight distribution. We don't have that. Man, you know the famous one on this sunlight distribution, right? It's the Melancholy cycle. That one is operating on you know twenty two thousand years to forty one to hundred thousand, and then four hundred thousand, so on and so forth. In fact, two point five million, that kind of thing. These are all the whole evolution of the planetary system. That one is is very well known in the sense that the only one that in the Climate science that is called theory is actually this particular theory from Belankovich called orbital theory of climate change. Orbital, yes, it requires the orbits to, to change ever so slightly. It, all of this have nothing to do with actually energetic. It's about persistency of the energy. Because to build an ice age, what does it do? You actually essentially, so Belankovich realized that it's actually summer, high latitude, 60 degree north. 60 degree, if you look at map carefully, the only place that actually all connected by land. You look, there's no sea. Well, look carefully, okay? But it's through this modulation 
that the summer sunlight getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer so that every time your winter and your 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 fall you build up the ice it don't melt away so you build ice age that's how you build you know remember new york and all this boston here right here salem i mean two miles thick of ice i mean we can't live here it's built up but then it's through the gradual and but persistent you know of summer insulation getting weaker and weaker you build up the ice age and then of course same mechanism build up of the stronger and stronger summer insulation that melt away the ice that you build up okay in the winter and and the cold season that's how you get this ice age that actually lasts for ninety thousand years and then when it melt it melt in ten thousand years that sort of thing when you build it it takes about ninety thousand years you know every hundred thousand years or so i mean milankovic of course figured that out in a brilliant way of course when you know what i mean instead of fighting in the war you just go to a library in hungary and places like that to do their work so yeah that that is actually the only thing that quantify as a theory but even that a lot of uh, if you are even more strict i'm very strict by the way i don't think that's even the full story so let's not confuse the audience because it's just science is just endless questioning <laughs> i mean someday milankovic may maybe be thrown to you know it, no, no one is for sure because it's just very difficult. I, I'm working on a lot of this sort of problem, by the way. The pro problem is you have to have a very good integration of the orbital system over millions of years. And then we found out that the system is chaotic in 10 million years. So that's a problem. Which means when it's chaotic, which means the initial condition has to be so precise. You are the one that, you know, you go to Colombia, so you understand a lot of this kind of problem, right? If you if you don't know your horizon future, your arrow is only 10 million years, crap, you've got another problem to deal with. So that sort of thing, you know, so it's just one thing after another. So before you ask any question, you need to know what is the right question to ask. It's just in this area, by the way, it's very fascinating for me because and I, I can tell you that the, the field is set back 50 years at least by this kind of nonsense from the IPCC type. I mean, most of the graduate students and all that, I, I can tell you it's embarrassing. I mean, to be serious that none of them should get a PhD because they just don't know what they're talking about. All they know is this stupid CO2, run a little computer. You know, it's just, come on, you don't want a PhD like that. You're wasting time. Yeah, I know. It's it, there's no science in there. It's just bad math. It's it's really bad math and preset yep. conclusions. The conclusions are there, and you need to run a bunch of numbers to arrive at the same conclusion. But for the audience, I'll I'll just briefly describe what I mean by the Milankovic cycles. So these are this is a Serbian uh, geophysicist and astronomer astronomer called Milutin Milankovic, and in the 1920s he hypothesized that variations in Earth's eccentricity, orbital eccentricity, in other words, the or the eccentricity the of the Earth's orbit, the shape of the Earth's orbit around the Sun, the axial tilt, so the tilt of the Earth's axis, and the precession which is the movement of the axis around a uh, around a circular movement i think you should read the wikipedia page because it's uh, it, it's not very easy to describe it but these are cycles that are well established we know that the earth goes through these cycles and they go they are happening over periods of 40,000 years and 20,000 years and 400,000 years and even though it's small variation, but I think uh, what he shows is that you can see the relationship between these kind of variations and the temperature and the climate, because these things tend to have a significant impact. And just think about it. If the earth is tilted a little bit more, the parts of the earth that are going to get uh, sunlight are going to be different. And therefore, 
the absorption of heat from the sun is going to be very different. And in my mind, I just think how much more fruitful would our climate science be if people weren't so blinded by this mania around CO2 and were instead considering these Milankovitch cycles and considering the issue of the sun and the radiation from the sun and the heat from the sun and trying to understand how these things combine to influence our climate and just how much more uh, we'd understand it. So I, the, 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 the last question that I have for you is, so we have all these different theories of what makes the climate. How strongly do you think these theories are able to predict future weather? And do you have strong opinions about the weather in the future? Because one thing for me that helped me break out of the um, climate hysteria is that these people are constantly saying, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, the, 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 New York is going to be flooded, Miami is going to be underwater, the North Pole is going to melt by 2015 or whatever, and all these dates come and go and none of the stuff happens and the Earth is still the same. So according to your models of climate and your understanding of climate, how uh, confidently can you make predictions? And if you can, what predictions can you give us? Okay. Well, prediction is always a very difficult thing, especially about the future. But we know, we know, for example, that we are long overdue. Remember, the Earth has been coming out from Ice Age about 21, 22,000 years ago. Then we've been warming up. Right then, we're in a Holocene phase, and typically Holocene phase we've been running about eleven thousand to you know ten thousand years. It won't last that long. So, in some sense, that we are due for an 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 incoming deep ice age like the one that twenty thousand years ago. Okay, that's rather serious. Okay, because this is where I try to say instead of wasting time on this carbon dioxide, we should now mine as many of this radioactive isotope because nuclear power is the only thing left for the future, actually, if we want to have pockets of survive, civilization surviving, okay? Now, and then we'll find a way of dealing with food, but energy-wise, okay, to, to deal with an ice age type. So real estate in a, in a tropical region will be, okay, will be good. But that is on this 40,000, 20,000 years timescale. That's a bit too long, but the persistency of this arrow cannot be stopped. By the way, there are already all kinds of nonsense paper from all these big guys. Like they would even lend their name to this kind of nonsense that I felt ashamed of science, by the way. This is why when you tell me that you want to give me a National Academy of Science, I say, do you maybe want to kiss my feet first? I refuse those things because they are the ones that now anti-science so badly that I really don't like this. But the point is that they, they lend their name. They, they're trying to, but it's not true. They have no evidence to, to say that the next ice age will never come. They're basically saying that. Because if we put more CO2, they say we were on a trajectory that no, all this nonsense, you know, scaring again. No, no basis. Then on top of that is the theory that I'm working on. It's on thousands of years, hundreds of years, and then that sort of thing, that fine details here. The fine details here that we have is that, by the way, of course, I never thought about not predicting. So we have done a lot of forecasting using AI, you know, genetic, all kinds of things, machine learning to, to get to the future a little bit. So in some sense, my best forecast that we have is through forecasting, well, orbits we already know, okay? We see that in the next uh, 50 to 60 years, that tends to have this tendency of, of, you know, decreasing summer insulation. And then we also know that the sun itself is possibly going to weaken. Okay? In fact, we already started it. We already started about 
10 years ago. This, this whole thing has started a little bit. This whole wave, a, a lot of this system, they have huge long-term inertia. It's already started in some sense. And then I felt, uh, so I'll give you a forecast of the next 50 years. Basically, we think it's going to be cold before it gets warm a little bit. The one we don't know. And this is basically because the CO2 have absolutely nothing to do with any of this thing, right? So don't, don't rely on the CO2. Rely on the sure thing, which is the orbit and the sun, really. You know, these are what the bet I think you want to bet anything. Yeah, I'll bet that one on that one because I don't know anything else better because, but that's the topic that I really work a lot on. on. And then plus you have to work a little bit on the, like I say, always have to worry about volcano. Volcano is one of those wild cards. You know, one of the volcano that happened the other day in uh, Hongatonga, you know, that one. <laughs> that one volcano in 2021, 2022 is the one that is already creating all kinds of crazy weather pattern, isn't it? So volcano, you got to pay attention to. But volcano is one of the hardest ones. And volcanology, my apology to anybody who have any interest in apology, because they prostitute themselves to the IPCC God and all those things, they have turned their science into a joke, a mockery of everything. Because they let them say that volcano has only cooling effects. They don't want to talk about anything else. The volcano all immediately turned into IPCC paradigm. Ready forcing this, ready forcing that. Instead of saying that every volcano is different. We don't know how much the amount of water vapor come out. How much the carbon dioxide come out from there. How much a particulate matter, you know, that sort of thing. Depends on how explosive weather. They turn the whole volcanology science, which is very, very interesting, into this nonsense. No, no one speak out. It's almost, I haven't found one volcanologist that will be as passionate about me. I'm in the solar area. I mean, my main area actually is solar physics, right? So at least I speak out. I, I've been speaking out since uh, the day I've become a postdoc at Center for Astrophysics. I keep talking, keep asking questions. But everybody ignore me, obviously. I don't really care. All I know is that I'm doing good work. I keep publishing them. Volcanology, I haven't found one that people that speak out against things like because it's ridiculous. Do you understand? They turn your science into a joke. How is that good? How is that even possible that you say you want to train future? And this is the kind of part that I felt at a loss if no more people speaking out about this. So through your channel, please people hear more about this because you know why? Ultimately, this science is the really important tools that we need. We cannot keep doing this sort of anti-science stuff and escape that we're going to escape away by all of a sudden want to turn on science again when you need them. You know, there are how many talents going to go away doing stupid things, you know? Instead of just doing the real science, like the one you just reflect upon, how much better we will understand the nature of this Melankovich forcing and things like that. <sighs> Not to be, but uh, we're going to keep trying because at least my group at series.science.com, please come to our webpage, donate if you can, but that's what we do. We're trying to focus only on science. We don't have any master. And also when you give some donation, please, you don't tell us also what to do. You can suggest things, obviously. We're open to everything. We, we're willing to listen to people, you know, that kind of thing. But there, in terms of agenda, we want to do certain science that is very good, very solid, long-lasting. I'm not I don't, not interested in hit and run. It's basically indefinite into the future. This kind of science, I feel so proud because many, many of my work, I am quite sure already I will be there, but 100, 200 years later, you will find the evidence of that in the scientific literature unless they burn all of the paper, of course. I don't really know. But all I know is that it's there because it's good work. It's good work that worthy of uh, what looking into it and see if we can advance further from that the last juncture that we have able to produce, you know, the last point. And then you progress from that because we have done what you call the due diligence, the duty 
of being a scientist that understand the topic, you know, really present it as clearly as we can in terms of that. And then, of course, open access. Every data that we ever produce and say is available. You go to IPCC, they say, why should I give you data? All kinds of standard problems. Like it's just so embarrassing that I cannot keep saying anything. Because they hide the data, they make it so difficult to find anything. It's just crazy. I mean, these people are so childish that I don't know if I were to be, yeah, give, let me be the, what you call, <laughs> the God for one day that I can be in charge of funding. I don't want to be God of anything. I just want to be in charge of the scientific funding. Then I'll be cut, 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 cut. A lot of this cut is very necessary for these people to wake up. You know, wake up. You know, you know, if you produce a scientific work and then you don't give the data away, you know, after you publish your paper with some decent amount, you should never ever publish the paper. You should never be, you know, taking National Science Foundation Award, National Institute of Health uh, kind of a grant, NASA Award, you know, NOAA, NOAA grant. You should never take that grant. Because these are people's work, people's money. It's our money. I give the money myself. I'm a taxpayer. And you don't let us have the data? What is this? Things like that. All right, on a positive note, thank you for the opportunity to spill my bean a little bit. And uh, this has been a very pleasant thing. And I learned a few things about Bitcoin, which I'm going to pursue, of course, study a bit more. Yes. Excellent. Well, we ha we have one of the attendees in the seminar has a question oh, for you. Sure, sure, sure. Um, you'd spoken before about the issue of ocean acidity and oh, yeah, uh, yeah, doing yeah. corals, and this is something that I also remember. There was a big hysteria about it, and I remember that they then found that the study's results don't replicate and that it doesn't make any sense. No, not only it that, it's, it's a completely made up too. <laughs> Let me tell you why I know the history. The story of ocean acidification, uh, well, I, I, sorry, we had to use that wording, but I hate the word ocean acidification. Ocean is in a basic state. You could never acidify it, you know, in that sense, right? It can be less, uh, less, less alkaline. That's it. You know, maybe the word to use is less alkaline to be proper. But this thing started in really about 60s and 70s when Stat Oil, which is Norwegian oil. Now they changed their name, by the way, the Norwegian big oil company. <laughs> they're trying to pump carbon in in the ground and then and then of course all the new thing coming in environmental impact assessment by the way i don't mind those things we should do some of that right we cannot just randomly want to pump a damn co2 in there right you know what i mean that cause explosion in lake Tanganyika, that kind of thing cause kill people that's not good right so they they worry then they one of the impact assessment is to oh would, when the co2 come out what does it do does, where does it go well first of all if it's CO2 gas, it's going to try to really absorb into a system, going to participate in a biogeochemical cycle, right? So it's carbonate by carbonate cycle. And, but it's all a joke, by the way. The, the measurement is so difficult that the changes of the pH that they predict, even if you burn all the carbon dioxide, is no more than 0 0.2, 0.3 scale of pH scale. Okay, pH you all should know, right? It's 0 to 14, 7 is neutral, 0 to 7 is static, 7 to 14 is basic, but ocean is at about 8.5, okay? And then there are many places in the ocean that is uh, more acidic. Well, <laughs> that's why I have a famous saying. If you want to worry about carbon dioxide, you know, into the air from the human emission and then go down into the ocean and cause the ocean to acidify and cause, essentially they show fake picture. Right, the fake picture of a thing inside a, a, a little jar, all the coral, all the fossil, you know, one day it look good and then one week it falls away. 
And do you know that kind of experiment is all fake? I actually caught that. I was so surprised. I didn't want to find it. And it turns out that you know what they did? In, those things are not CO2 experiment. It's not letting the CO2 going into the thing and bubble through the whole system. They actually put weak hydrochloric acid in the in the water. That is the truth. And then you got Noah, this uh, this guy, Jane Lubchenko from Oregon State, become the administrator of the Noah. They start to call uh, what you call osteoporosis of the sea. They always love the language. It's all nonsense, all through that kind of experimentation. But and then that's why when the real test of letting CO2 and then bubbling through the whole system, continue in the system, there's an experiment done. But that kid now, keep quiet. He was at the Woods Hole and then he went to North. He went somewhere and then now he's at North Northeastern. Now he's so quiet, that kid. By the way, they show in the experiment that when you do this and then you let the system settle into, that experiment requires six months or so. They show that in a high concentration CO2, like 400, 800, 1600 parts per million, right? They show the, for example, they show for certain species like lobster and all, they all get bigger. I, I, I was so lucky to be the last few to get the photo from him when he was still friendly and not a scale. But now they're scared. They actually want to falsify their own result, by the way. I had that picture. So in my, and, and the weird thing is that I always have a statement to say, if you want to worry, you want to outlaw this CO2, the first thing you must do is that you got to outlaw rain because Rain pH is 5.5. I mean, you, you go into the ocean, mix with air. Won't you think you acidify the ocean from the rain? It is that ridiculous. I'm not making this up. This whole thing was crazy. And then even all this example that they say they have from the Northwest about the oyster people farm. My God, when I go look into it, it's all fake. Oh, I just couldn't stand this sort of nonsense. It's that bad. It is all made up. That's the whole answer for this one. Okay, and then if you or someday you should hear the sea level story. Oh my God, the satellite turned into magic. Satellite are not supposed to be able to measure anything coastal, and then because of the radar problem, you know, the you, your boundary between the land and the ocean, is is that kind of thing that actually I'm one of those scientists that you know I'm not a theoretician like Lindzen and all that. I'm not so elegant in that way. Like elegant scientists will produce simple solutions. No, no. I look into the nitty-gritty of how the radar really worked, this and that. They could never produce anything coastal results and satellite altimetry data. You know, to measure things down to millimeter. You know, you imagine the wave height. They want to measure millimeter. It's all crazy stuff. Even all the altimetry product, you got to be careful what they're selling you. It's all over-promise and then... I would say not very uh, good standard of uh, of study, and they're all basically third-rate people. In that sense, the work they produce is just not good. And I'm very kind of tired because, you know, already from the range of the beginning of this topic, I every one of this I study in details. I look into all of this. Oh, never mind polar bear. So it's enough. I also done polar bear, two papers. <laughs> so look up Willie Soon, who really study a lot of things, please. And then and, and help us out if you guys can, because... I think science have a problem because the, the funding structure and the funding agency is all corrupted. And then we, if you want free science, you got to start have this kind of a really proper science and people that really, really care about science and do it without anybody's telling us what to do, but, but really earnestly pursue it and then publish in the peer review places. I always go to the peer review, always publish the same thing. And even today, I can tell you, they, they beat us so many times. You know how painful for us to publish a paper? You want to print a paper, you know already, if you want to print, I don't dare to go to nature, not because I cannot go there. 
It's $20,000 to pay for those pay charges. Who the heck going to pay for that? I ain't got no money. Even the $2,000 is so painful. Now we just got one paper for $5,000. Where am I going to find $5,000 to do this? It's, it's and ridiculous. Then from the government agency, easy access. NASA, Goddard, Gitch Institute, Professor Michael Mann, this and that. All that paper, open access. Everybody read. For my paper, cannot because it's copyright. I cannot. You know, I can send you my preprint. Then it's not a proper form. And those guys always beat us in that way because no one read our paper. But beginning people to gain our attention, like the paper that I just published on the Urban Hill, that was 65,000 downloads. So I'm happy that at least people are reading that. You know, that's very rare because usually nobody, no thousand people download your paper. This is 65,000. So that's good. We are gaining some momentum. But I'm just telling you, as a free scientist, it's not easy. But the point is that people, we should start helping each other because if you want a true source of information, this is the only way to go because you cannot count on them. All our agency, NASA, NOAA, you go to all their webpage. I'm sorry, you cannot EPA. You cannot even read between two lines. It's already somewhat... Uh, you see, it's so good at playing the game of uh, what you call half-truth, half-lies. I mean, half-truth plus half-truth is not going to be one truth. It's actually absolute lie. It just doesn't amount to anything. You know, it is that kind of thing bothers me to no end and they keep doing it day in, day out. And I'm sorry, we don't have mechanism to stop them. We always think voting will help, but someday, who knows? All I know is that as a scientist, it's very, very hard for me in the sense because I really know uh, in the sense that I know what I know. If I don't know, I'll tell you what I don't know. That's what the whole thing is. A lot of these people are not willing to admit they don't know anything. Some of them, they really literally don't know anything and they're teaching your, your student, your, your, your kid and grandchildren. In that sense, yeah, another dilemma is that when you send your kid to college, pick a good college. Don't, don't send them to all the big school. I will refuse my kid to go to Harvard and all that even. So... <laughs> Anyway, sorry, yeah. it's another rant, but uh, yeah, it, I think my, my feeling is sincere that we have to keep doing the best thing. Truth is so important. Do not ever let anybody sway you from another, you know, like, yeah, that you can get by by, you know, doing a little bit. No, 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 it's not going to work. You're going to have all kinds of problems. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of examples to show those things. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I agree with you on the uh, on the academic publication industry. It is so corrupt, and yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I strongly urge people to just get out of it and stop yeah. playing that game because it's just so, so, so absolutely corrupt. I mean, the journals, the, the running the journal costs practically nothing. nothing. All the editors yeah. work for free. They're all university professors who do it because they need it on their CV, and it's our intellectual property. Actually. Yeah, and, and, and they publish PDFs online that everybody downloads. So it's not that there's no cost of production. There's a graphic designer, basically, that gets yeah. paid 50 bucks for a, per article or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Paid. More, yeah, exactly. And, and, and then they make and all the all they have to pay if they want to make people read your paper. Because I know. people, when they click, they don't allow to read. They already turn off. You know, nobody wants to do that, you know? Anyway, yeah. Yeah, incidentally, the guy who really built the academic publication industry into what it is today is a man by the name of Robert Maxwell, who died about 20 years ago. And you may know of his daughter, who has been in the news a lot recently. Her name oh, is Ghislaine yeah, Maxwell. Okay. Okay. Uh, wow. So that's a little uh, nice little uh, breadcrumb we're going to leave the reader with. Uh, read yes. about Robert Maxwell and his contribution to academia and scientific research by inventing this horrific scam of a system that has served uh, public publishing companies at the expense of scientists and universities and students and learners and science and human knowledge over the last few decades on that the uh, 
fascinating and interesting note. I want to thank you again, Dr. Soon. Thank you so much for all of your work. Thank you for joining us and thank you for all of the information that you've given us. And I will uh, tell everybody to go and check out your website. We're going to be posting the link on the show notes. Thank and you. it is ceres-science.com. And Ceres is spelled C-E-R-E-S-science.com. Yep. Check out all the papers and the publications. And uh, anything else you want to tell us about where to find you online? No, that's it. That's, that's about all. I'm not on social Are you on Twitter? No. No. You should get on Twitter. You should get on Twitter. Twitter. Uh, you keep telling Linzen to do that. Uh, maybe I should be, but uh, Linzen, no, he's not gonna. Please, he's old timer, old school man. No, no. <laughs> anyway, I might, I might, yeah, because I, 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 I but I, I want to avoid all this attack. So, but we're making YouTube video, by the way. So we're trying to make YouTube. You, videos. you, you have the block button on Twitter, so you can only engage with the people who add value. You don't have to answer anybody. Yeah. True. Very true. All right. Yeah. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.